Well, turn in your Bibles to Genesis 29. And we are... I feel like saying we're back in Genesis, but we've been in Genesis the whole time, haven't we? It just, we're back. And it, it, it really is... Um, it is tremendous uh, for us to be back. Uh, in, in terms of preparation, a lot of uh, work and planning and thought and prayer has gone into all of this as we have thought through uh, what to do. And uh, little things have fallen through the cracks, and hopefully those aren't too tremendously distracting. I just realized this morning as Clayton began talking about Pentecost that I didn't hang the drape when I said that I would. It was just one of those things that did, didn't even hit me till this morning, so hopefully... Maybe it's a distraction now that I've mentioned it. Um, but uh, there have been a number of people who've worked, and I just wanted to take a moment and say thank you to our, especially to our deacons who've worked to make everything uh, smooth and happen and, and this whole thing, and Susan for her work, uh, and also Walt Newman who's uh, making the live stream possible this morning. So I just want to take a moment to say thank you. Look in Genesis chapter 29 and beginning in verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, <clears throat> was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? And they said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it's still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went in to her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. 
complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, would you teach and instruct and fill us with the power of your word as it is proclaimed today? Lord, use it and help us. Lord, help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as we have gone through the book of Genesis, we have seen uh, more than just a few ironies along the way. Some have been a little more pronounced than others. I would say this one is one that is certainly more prominent. An irony is simply something that is different than what you'd expect or something different from what is stated. And sometimes ironies are a little more subtle and sometimes they are a little more pronounced. And this one where we see Jacob, who is the known trickster, right? He's the one who deceived his father. He's the heel grabber that he was named as. He becomes the one tricked in this passage. And even as I read it again this morning, you just get the sense that Jacob is just so blinded by love that he doesn't even see it coming. He just is so caught off guard. And you can imagine how... His father felt and how Esau felt when they were tricked multiple times, well, his brother multiple times, and now Jacob is uh, in the same situation. Well, when when we consider this irony, we can also think of our own lives and recognize that there are thinly veiled ironies in each of our own experiences. When you think about, for example, the call to love as we have been loved, We've read about that in a number of contexts, and we've prayed about that in this morning. To, to love as God has loved us. We know that we love because he first loved us, and then we are called to love as he loves us. Incalculable, right? We can't even measure the love that has been shown to us in Christ. And yet, do we live in such a way? As Christians, that ought to be the hallmark of our lives. As ones who have been loved... That's what our lives ought to look like. And yet, it's a little bit ironic that often it doesn't. Aren't we often selfish? Do we not mistreat other people? Have we not lied? Have we not spoken poorly of others and gossiped? And the list goes on and on. Or when we think of the call to forgive, to forgive as we have been forgiven, when we think of all that we have been forgiven, that all of our sins have been laid upon Christ. We think of the parable of the one who was forgiven much, who went out immediately and tried to strangle one who in comparison owed him mere pennies. And we are convicted because we do the same thing. Even though all of our sins have been cast upon Christ and we have been forgiven, do we ever hold a grudge? Do we ever withhold forgiveness? We might not admit it, but let's be honest in our own hearts. We know this is a struggle. And we see the own the ironies in our own lives. You see, we're not all that different from Jacob. Yeah, Jacob had had this incredible experience at Bethel. It was almost like a coronation in which the promise had been pronounced over him 
by God himself in visiting him. And he sees the stairway to heaven and he's told that God, by God himself, I will be with you and I will do all of these things. And does Jacob go and live with this fierce confidence of who he is in Christ? Even though he doesn't know the name of Christ, we could say who he is in Yahweh. Uh, no, no, he forgets. We see it right away. I mean, this, there is some time in between these two passages, but Jacob goes right back, as we often do, and lives not like one who has been crowned as an heir, but one who is an orphan. He's living like an orphan, and we can relate to that as well. So as we pick up in this passage in verse 1 this week, we've left Bethel, this newly named Bethel, uh, where Jacob had this dream, and he continues on. It says, Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. This was the land of his mother's family, really of his father's family as well. This was kind of their home, where they were from. And as he heads in this direction, we know that Jacob didn't have GPS. Uh, He probably didn't have a map either. And so he is being guided by the uh, providence of God and that he ends up in the right place. And the, the author, while he doesn't say this specifically, he seems to highlight it by the use of the phrase, the land of the people of the east. Jacob was headed in the general direction. But we even see it when he arrives. He doesn't know where he is. He has to ask where he is and to, to figure out if he's made it. And so God has providentially guided Jacob, not only to the general area, but to the specific well that Rachel is about to walk up to with the sheep. And this reminds us, excuse me, of another experience, right? Another story, a similar story, a few chapters back in 24, where Abraham sent his servant to find a wife for Isaac. And we remember the same type of happening, that God guided the servant to the exact place that he needed to go, to this well. And this isn't the same well, lest we think that this was some kind of, you know, the the, the old family farmhouse, everybody knew where it was. This is clearly a different well. It's described very differently. This one had a stone. It was more of a cistern, had a stone covering the top of it. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So this is, these are two different wells that in these two stories. But what is similar or what is the same is that God has led both of these people by his almighty hand. But there's also some differences contrast that we see between these two episodes, that of the servant of Abraham when he came to find Rebekah, and now Jacob's experience. And contrasts uh, are something, that, again, we have seen quite a number of in the book of Genesis. They're, they're almost a favorite tool, a teaching tool of Moses that he uses, contrast to instruct us, to help us to see, to help us to understand. And so there are a number of these that we see here. There are the obvious ones, for example, Isaac doesn't have to do the work, does he? His dad sends the servant to go do it for him. Isaac doesn't have to do anything. Isaac stays at home. And here we see Jacob going on the quest himself. The servant came with what? Gold and wealth and riches to give as gifts in exchange for a bride. And Jacob is seemingly empty-handed. There's no indication that he has anything to his name. The servant developed a test. Remember the test? that he, he prayed and, and he said, Lord, if, if she comes up and offers to water uh, or, or agrees to water when I ask her, that'll be the one. Jacob is seemingly only interested in Rachel's good looks. He seems, it's, we, we can almost think this was love at first sight, at least on, 
on, uh, on Jacob's from his perspective. Now, as we know, in many romantic relationships, it's often the guy who falls first before the girl, and this may be one of those examples. But there's also a number of contrasts here that aren't so obvious. One is how the servant function. The servant was prayerful. Do you remember that? He prayed the entire time. He prayed before, he prayed during, and he prayed after. He prayed before that God would guide him. He prayed during that God would continue to guide him, and he kind of acknowledged God's guidance. And at the end, he prayed a prayer of thanksgiving that God had guided him. And here, what does Jacob pray? Nothing. He's prayerless. He's faithless. There's no indication of him even looking to God in faith. So having just had this incredible experience at Bethel, thinking that he would continue to walk valiantly in faith, Jacob is now functioning back in his flesh. He's just walking in his own strength. You think, too, of the the servant's test that he gave Rebekah. He wanted to learn something of Rebekah's character. It demonstrated something of who she was, that she so willingly uh, did all of that labor to water the sheep. And Jacob here, what does he do? He's not interested. He thinks Rachel's beautiful. He just wants to show off. He just, as soon as she shows up, he runs up and gets the rock, the stone off of the well himself. It's almost like he's, you know, having his own uh, gun show. You know, he just, he, he wants to show off. He wants to impress Rachel. And so Jacob is continuing to operate in the eyes, we're with the eyes of flesh rather than prayerfully with the eyes of faith. Now, we see him, when he arrives, he encounters this, this group of shepherds with their flocks at the well, and this, this well is covered by this stone. As I've mentioned, uh, this was a different well. It's described differently. And he engages these shepherds. He asks them where they're from, which implies to us that he doesn't know where he is. He, he just has, Moses has said he's gone to the land of the people of the east. So he thinks he's heading in the right direction, but he doesn't know yet. And when he said, when they tell him that they are from Haran, he knows, okay, I know Haran, I'm, I'm close. And so then his next question is, do you know Laban? And they say, yeah, we know Laban. And so now he knows he is very close. And then as they're talking, Rachel comes up. She comes with her dad's sheep. Now, being a shepherdess is no doubt, uh, a shepherd or a shepherdess is no doubt a, a difficult, physical, uh, challenging role. And in this time, it would have been unique for women to be a shepherdess. In fact, it's so unique, we don't see very many women functioning as shepherds in the time of the Bible. And so there was also the, the, the aspect of it was hard work, but then just culturally, it was viewed as kind of a man's job. And so we see something about Rachel already. In fact, the term that's, that's translated shepherdess there in verse 9, that's the only place in Scripture that term appears. So Rachel is unique in that. You know, in the South, we have a, a, a word that describes women who can get things done. Women of physical resilience who aren't afraid to get a little dirty and can get things done. We call them a hoss. And I remember... Um, it's a southern thing. I just educated you on some southern culture there today, for those of you not from the south. Um, I remember once when I was traveling, uh, my wife, uh, I got pictures of uh, a truck with 50, 50 bags of mulch that had been picked up, dropped off, delivered, that she had done all of the work on. 
And I flattered her by calling her a hoss. I told her that's what she was a hoss. Um, that's that's either uh, offensive or funny. I'm not sure. But uh, the point is, is Rachel is a hoss. She's she's a shepherdess. She can get things done. She's not afraid to, to get her hands dirty. She's not afraid to work hard. So we do learn something from her. But what is Jacob most captivated by? By her appearance. She's beautiful. And he wants to get rid of all of these shepherds. He wants them to move along so he can have a captive audience with Rachel. Look at what he says to him. Behold, it's still high day. It's not time to water the livestock. Um, you know, go, get out of here. Go pasture them. What, I mean, here's his, he's a stranger in town. What business does he have to come up to, to shepherds and say something like this? Except that his motivation is he's eyed Rachel now and he wants them out of the way. Of course, their response is, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. They had a system. And the system is almost certainly in place because the rock or the stone that was over the well, was the removal of it was not a one-man job. It was a big stone. It was a heavy stone. It usually involved multiple shepherds trying, uh, working to remove it. And so when we see him spring into action then in verse 10, in response to seeing Rachel, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the mouth, the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. We realize that Jacob is a man of some strength. The author had already pointed out that it wasn't typically done. It mentions it was giant, it was, it was large. So this, this was something that was pretty incredible. So any notion of Jacob being kind of soft because he was his mother's favorite is now removed beyond all doubt. Jacob is a man of physical prowess. He is able to get things done. And so after watering her flocks, then we see him respond with this emotion. He weeps aloud, it says, and then he kisses her. This is not a romantic kiss as we might think because we see Laban come out when he greets him and kiss him as well. This was a culturally appropriate kiss of a a greeting of a family member. This is how uh, Jacob greets Rachel. And then as soon as she realizes who he is, she runs away uh, and tells her dad. And now Laban comes out and he welcomes him home. And he says in verse 14, surely you're my bone and my flesh. Another little irony that's hidden there is what Jacob or what Laban says there. Certainly you are my bone and my flesh. What he's saying is your family. But there's also a little bit of a, an ironic uh, uh, play, play on words there that Jacob and Laban are both cut from the same cloth. They're not just family. They're both tricksters. They're both schemers. They're both ones who, who lie and deceive to get their way. And we see that flow out of this story. Now, as I've mentioned, there's no record here of Jacob acknowledging God for, for, for leading him to just the right place. If you think about it, this is exactly where his parents had sent him. And he gets there straight away. This was clearly at the hand of the Lord, and Jacob doesn't acknowledge it. And then he's going to be here now for a month before the rest of the story unfolds. I want to pause here for just a moment and consider some of the things that we see in this first part of the text in terms of our own lives. And the first question I would ask is, do we recognize God's providential care in every detail of our lives? Now, I think we do when things are good. I think when God blesses us, we are quick as believers to recognize this is a good gift and we thank God for it. I think where we struggle is when difficult things come. 
we, we, we don't want to believe that God would allow this. And we even wrestle maybe internally with, is, is God sovereign over this? Is he ruling and reigning over this? This is so difficult. This is so painful. This is so ugly. Is God in control over this? You remember the story of Job and all the calamity that he experienced. I mean, just utter, utter grief and all that he lost. And what did his wife tell him to do? His wife said, curse God and die. And Job's response to his wife when she said this to him, as we read in Job 2.10, is, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And so recognizing that God... That loving providential hand that guides our lives sifts not only the good, but the difficult. And he does it with good intent. In other words, it is part of a sovereign plan that he works through providence to do good things in our lives. And in hindsight, we often see that. But when we're going through it, isn't it not just a difficult thing to believe that? It's so, so hard. The second thing we can ask ourselves is, do we prayerfully walk through life or do we ignore God altogether or at least until things get really messy? When we contrast those two, uh, the servant and Jacob, in terms of the, how they responded in the uh, uh, approach of trying to find a wife, the prayer of the servant was continual throughout the whole process and Jacob is not, uh, is not shown to even mention God once in this chapter. We think of Psalm 86. Psalm 86 is both a prayer and a guide to prayer. And I encourage you to look at that sometime in terms of just how do I pray? Psalm 86 is a good kind of guide to how to pray. And there are two almost uh, components that we see repeated throughout that psalm. There's the call of help, and then there's the acknowledgement of help or praise. And so it's, Lord, help me. And thank you for helping me. Those are the two components. And isn't that what we saw in the servant when he came to find Rebecca? For example, in chapter in, in 86, uh, verse 6 of Psalm, it says, Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. And then verse 15 is that response of praise, of thanksgiving. But you, O Lord, are God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and, and, and faithfulness. So both of these elements repeated throughout that Psalm, that's, what ought to characterize our daily lives in terms of how we pray. Not that we just pray once in the morning or pray once over a meal, but that we live our lives praying unceasingly, uh, praying without ceasing, uh, continually praying that we, when, we, when we face difficulty, when we face things that are unknown, that our response isn't anxiety, fear, anger, but our response is to go to God in prayer. Give me help. And I thank you for helping me. Those two things are good examples for us to follow. The last question I would ask is, do we look at the world around us with eyes of faith or do we simply look at the world with eyes of flesh? This is a challenge for all of us. We get gospel amnesia really, really quick, don't we? We forget so quickly. And and, and the way we know that we forget is because of fear. It's because of anger because of anxiety, because of depression, because of these things that, that can creep up in our lives that they indicate what we truly think, what we truly believe, how we're truly looking at the world. If you remember the story of Elisha when he was there with his servant in Second Kings and the army of Syria was opposing them and the servant was concerned. It says in Second Kings 6.15, When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, Do not be afraid for those who are with us 
are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That's what it means to look with eyes of faith, to know that the mighty God who made all things and rules over all things and holds all things together and his army of angels is with us all the time, that we will never leave us or forsake us, and that even when life doesn't make sense or difficulty is there before us, that we can trust him and put our confidence in him. So trust God's providential care, pray without ceasing, and look with faith upon all the circumstances in your life. Well, because Jacob wasn't doing that, there's no indication of him doing this. We see him kind of regress in this chapter. Then he is setting himself up, so to speak, for this deception that we see happen in the second part. The one who had schemed against his own father and his brother multiple times is now about to get taken advantage. After being in the house, he begins working for Laban. And so Laban comes to him and says, Hey, you know, just because you're family doesn't mean you should work for free. What do you want to be paid? What do you want to be paid? Now, Jacob, you know, doesn't have anything. We're not indicated he has really anything to his name. And culturally... As we saw with the servant who came for Rebekah, a bride price was paid. It was a gift that was given that really demonstrated the ability of the one marrying to provide for the wife. And Jacob doesn't have this. So Jacob needs a job. He needs to make a salary. This would have been a good thing. But we have to remember Jacob's the sneaky one, isn't he? He's conniving. So he thinks of a plan. He thinks, I'll just work for Rachel. And he thinks in his own mind, this sounds like a good plan, but he doesn't know who he's dealing with. Laban is going to take the plan and twist it for his own advantage. Now, we know that Jacob is in love with Rachel. We see that in verse 18. You see it almost immediately just in terms of the way he reacts. This is another one of those. This could make a good Hallmark movie. Uh, you know, just the, the romance and the sparkle and all of that. But he's been now there with her for some time, at least a month. And so they've spent time together. They've gotten to know each other more. And he is just head over heels. And so his response in verse 18, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Jacob is very specific what he's working for there. And Laban agrees with this kind of nebulous response that we wouldn't think of as anything but agreement to what Jacob had said, except when we go back and read it, Laban didn't specifically say, you know, and uh, this is often how schemers work. Laban's response is actually, it kind of falls flat. You know, you would think that when you're about to gain a son-in-law, there would be some kind of, like, excitement or enthusiasm or something in terms of how you might greet him or say something to him. And his response is almost like, well, I guess better you than anybody else. (laughs) You kind of imagine Jacob going, oh, well, okay. (laughs) Uh, and, And that's Laban's response. But we're told... Because I think mainly he's just blinded by love in verse 20, that because of his love that he had for her, that the seven years just flew by. They just flew by. And it sounds sweet, and I guess it is sweet, but there's, as you know, more to the story. See, when the time's up and it's it's time for the wedding ceremony and Jacob comes to Laban, he has no idea what is about to happen. Laban organizes this wedding feast, and we know enough about the wedding culture in that time that it was a seven-day feast, a week-long feast, and it would begin the day, first day with the wedding ceremony and so forth, but it was a, uh, it was a time of celebration. 
And the word that's used for feast is usually linked for a feast with drinking. So there would have been uh, a celebration with drinking, with festivity. And we know in Scripture that the, the, the Bible tells us that wine makes the heart glad. There's several verses. This is from Psalm 104, but a number of verses that talk about this, that, that wine is something that soothes, that wine is something that makes our hearts glad or gives joy. But we're also told in Scripture, in Proverbs 20, that wine is a mocker. And so while alcohol is not forbidden for the believer, it comes with a warning label. You know, the warning labels that are on so many things. There's a warning label there. And if the warning label wasn't given in Proverbs 20, it's certainly here in this passage because Jacob now is enjoying the festivities and so forth and it's almost certain that his faculties were diminished. And so under the veil of darkness and literally with a veil over her face, Laban sneaks Leah into the bridal tent in the darkness. And it's not until the sun comes up the next morning that Jacob looks and sees and you it's captured here, his surprise. Look in verse 25. Behold, it was Leah. I mean, you can only imagine Jacob's response. Like, what has happened? What in the world? What is this? Seven years of labor. Seven years of waiting. Seven years of love. And behold, it was Leah. Now, there's a lot of varying ideas about Leah. Was you know, Depending on what translation you have, the ESV says that her eyes were weak. Um, and some people take that to mean that her vision was poor. I don't think at all that's what Moses is trying to communicate here. If you look at the whole statement in verse 17, it says, Her eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. There's a contrast there. And so the second part of the contrast is informing the word picture of the first part. Now, beauty was seen in the eyes, and so the vibrancy and so forth. Maybe her eyes didn't have the vibrancy or the color that, that, that Rachel's had or whatever, but Rachel is described as beautiful in form, and appearance. And so, in contrast, Leah wasn't as beautiful as Rachel. And this is probably why Jacob was so smitten with her at first sight. And so, now, the bottom line, it's still, the act is done. The, the, the union has been consummated. Leah is now Jacob's wife. And he doesn't even apologize for it when Jacob comes and confronts him. We see that Jacob comes to him and says, in essence, what in the world? What have you done? And his excuse is something like, well, that's not the way we do things around here. And you think, wouldn't that have been nice to disclose when we made the agreement? Wouldn't it have been nice for you to tell me that earlier? That's not the way we do things around here. But as mad as Jacob might have been, it seems like he doesn't care too much after that initial confrontation because he still gets Rachel. He gets the apple of his eye. He gets his princess. And Laban is smart enough to know that Jacob, (laughs) Jacob's not going to fall for this again. He's not going to work for another seven years and wait for another seven years. And so Laban comes up with his own plan that, hey, at the end of the week, at the end of the wedding feast, at the end of the seven days, you can go ahead and marry Rachel. You just have to hang around for seven more years. And so the two connivers kind of get the best of each other, but they figure out a plan. So think about it, 14 years That's what Laban got out of this deal. I don't know the amount of wealth that the servant brought for Rebecca uh, in that dowry. I don't know what what that was actually worth and how that would measure against 14 years. But I'm almost convinced that 14 years was worth a lot more. That that Laban got a much better deal uh, for, uh, for Rachel. And we could call that shrewd or we could call that him being a good businessman or whatever. But the bottom line is... Laban was no dummy. And so Jacob 
isn't really complaining about it because, again, he gets Rachel. And it says in verse 30 that he loved her more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. As you might imagine, that favoritism of loving Leah or loving Rachel more than Leah is going to create a problem. Uh, we're going to see that as the story continues uh, in, in terms of that. And again, there's another little bit of irony there because hadn't Jacob experienced the favoritism and the dynamic that is a result of that in with, with his own parents that we, we saw previously. So here in 29, we see the contrast. We see more trickery. It's almost like a soap opera. The, the saga continues. But there's something else that we've seen in this chapter that we haven't talked about, and that is wilderness training or what we could call wilderness training. You look at Jacob's life, and God takes him through this period of nearly 20 years to equip him and to train him. We see it happen with Abraham. We see it happen with David. We see it happen with Moses. That all of these people were, uh, they were kind of taken through the school of life before the mantle of leadership was laid upon them. That they had to go through the school of hard knocks before they were ready to lead. And now we can almost see this is what God is doing in Jacob's life, that before he changes his name from Jacob to Israel, that he is now taking him through this exile experience, this training experience where he he doesn't have the power. He is at the, the mercy of Laban. And so for 14 years, he goes through this school of hard knocks that he would be equipped to then carry the mantle of the name Israel. And that is, is sometimes how the Lord works in our lives, that He takes us through difficult things, through challenging things, through hard things to equip us for something else. And we're not always told. We're not always given the explanation. We're not always, uh, we're not always able to figure out why. Sometimes in retrospect we can understand it. But God is not in the habit of wasting our lives. Hear that today. God is not in the habit of wasting your life, not one breath of your life. And so our mindset ought to be the same, that we ought not to waste one breath of our life, that we ought not to think that this period, that that things aren't going the way that I want them to, so I can just live the way that I want, or I I don't care, God's not near, He doesn't love me, or all the things that we fight against when difficult things come. God is not wasting any difficult thing that we face, or any good thing that we face. But beyond this time of equipping and training and so forth, we also need to remember the promise that was given to Jacob. Again, we saw it last week, this incredible promise, the promise that had been spoken to by his father to him that God himself came and pronounced over Jacob in this dream. And he was so moved by this experience that his response was that of worship. And we might think that from that point on, Jacob would never falter in his faith to God, that he would continually trust God and remain faithful to God all of his days. But as we have seen, that's not the case. And as we look in our own lives, we understand that's not the case either. We talk about gospel amnesia. We talk about so easily forgetting the promises that have been given to us. Consider just this promise given in Romans 8.16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. 
Paul says something similar in Galatians 4.4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The, the two verses say, much of the same, but they also add some, some, some different things. But if we boil it down to this one promise, it is that we have been adopted as God's children. And because we are adopted as God's children, we are heirs. Heirs. Co-heirs with Christ. Now let that, let that simmer for a minute. What all should that mean for us? And yet, how do we live? Do we live as heirs of the, of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Or do we forget? We forget the promises. We forget the indwelling power of the Spirit. We forget the free access that we have to the throne of grace. We forget the love that will not let us go. And we live like orphans. Just like Jacob did in this passage. Received this incredible promise and yet went on living like he was a slave that hadn't been set free. And we know the promises that have been given to us in Christ and yet we live like we're orphans, like we're powerless, like we don't have access to the throne room of God. C.S. Lewis captures this in this quote that we, many of us know quite well. He writes, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We have been given in Christ all of the wealth of His righteousness credited to us, our inheritance. It is what lays before us. And yet we go on living forgetting all of that, don't we? So let's remember that. Let's hold fast to that. Let's cling to that, that we know who we are. Clinging to the truth that we are God's children that we have inherited this uh, incredible inheritance that awaits us. We are gripped by an unbreakable, everlasting love that no one can separate us from. And let us hold fast then to that inheritance. Jesus himself, who will, when he returns one day, cause all of these momentary afflictions to grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider this story of Jacob today and we think of how we are so much like him, so quick to forget all that is ours, all the promises that have been given to us, and we go on living in the flesh, we go on functioning in our own strength, we go on living by our own wisdom, forgetting the indwelling power of the Spirit, forgetting the access to the throne room, forgetting the unbreakable love that is ours because of Christ. Lord, we live like orphans. Would you draw us back again and again to see the inheritance that is ours so that we will live not as slaves, but as ones who have been set free. Ones who have been set free from sin and from death and ones who have been set free to life and to holiness. Lord, would you continually remind us of this truth, bring us back to it through faith and repentance again and again, and cause us to marvel at this. May we never take it for granted. 
Keep us from falling into despair or into anger or into frustration when life comes at us in ways that are unexpected or even hurtful. And may we trust that you are a good God who is doing good things for us, working all things together for your glory. So plant those truths deeply within our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.